Stay up to date on the groundbreaking tests and solutions powering the healthcare system. You're listening to Diagnostic Dialogues from Quest Diagnostics. Here's your host, Dr. Pat Alicia. Welcome to Diagnostic Dialogues, innovation and insight presented by Quest Diagnostics, where we speak with top researchers, doctors, and thought leaders about the hottest topics in healthcare. From the latest in cutting-edge research to what's coming next in the world of diagnostic medicine. This is your inside track on the engines that power the healthcare ecosystems. Hello, I'm your host, Dr. Pat Alaja, and today I'm joined by my good friend and colleague, Dr. Steve Goldberg. Dr. Goldberg is the Vice President, Chief Health Officer, Employee and Population Health at Quest Diagnostics. He joins me now to discuss diagnostics insights and how they can help improve the health and well being of both individuals and communities. Steve, welcome to the show. So, you know, when I look at health and wellness, and you and I talk about this when we have a breakfast, and we're not reaching for the sweet rolls anymore. We're looking for the oatmeal and the fruit. And yet there are a lot of folks out there who haven't made those behavioral changes. How can we help other people make those behavioral changes that we know are important in terms of managing diabetes, managing our cholesterol, um, weight, blood pressure? Well, here's what I would say is we think about what we're trying to do in our own work setting. We did a fresh review of the literature earlier this year, and there are a couple of things that are pretty clear. If you focus on a narrow problem or a narrow issue, you're more likely to be successful. So if you want to put attention to blood pressure, there's things you can do to have some success there. If you want to put attention to prediabetes, you can do the same. When you talk more globally about lifestyle, and sleep and weight. It's tougher for an employer and our workplace to do something that translates beyond our own walls. And you really have to be creative. And there are certain strategies to be able to get it done, but it's it's a tougher climb than something that's more narrowly focused. You've run employee health programs for a, a long time. You know what employee health benefits look like. How do you make this real to me? Because I'm thinking about disease management, I'm thinking about orthopedics, oncology, women's health, and say I want to move it up to the top of my list. How do you make this real for me? Can you help bridge that gap? Yeah, yeah. I I think there are four general things that I do, four different conversations. The first one is that there's good evidence that companies that promote a culture of health outperform others in the marketplace. And... A culture of health is associated with lower healthcare cost trends. And also that it's critical when we talk about culture of health that we have executive team modeling, senior leaders doing healthy behaviors, because that's how people connect. And then seeing that culture and that modeling take its way all the way through down to the manager and supervisor and then ultimately the frontline level. That's how you build sustained change. Now, the value of it is certainly on healthcare costs, but also things that are a bit softer, things like absenteeism, retention, presenteeism, productivity. That's the second key argument I make. The third key argument I make is that when I look at, for example, our healthcare spend, 80% of it is in 5% of our beneficiaries, 80%. And then about 80% of our population spends less than $500 a year. 
And so what I constantly think about is what can we do to identify folks that are going to be healthcare bloomers? And the reality is it's very hard. And what you have is just lots of healthcare risk sitting, occurring, ongoing in those folks that are not incurring any healthcare spend. So the fourth thing, and what I think is really critical, is screening. Regular questionnaires, regular biometrics, and those are things like lab tests and measures of height, weight, BMI, et cetera, to get a view of what's going on in your population. So I think those four elements are critical to bending the curve for an employer. And if you look at healthcare risks and lifestyle risks, they probably generate almost a third of your annual healthcare spend. So there's tens of millions of dollars in the risk that is carried by the population, but is not yet blooming into a healthcare cost. So if I'm the CEO, the four things you want me to remember are culture of health, the value of employee health, identification of those patients, and then screening. Pretty close? And modeling. Let your employees see you walk in the walk. So let me go back to this culture of health. Are you talking about yoga in the morning, you know, only eating cereal and grains and berries, and then having Tai Chi in the afternoon? What does it look like in the workplace when you're implementing an employee health and wellness program? Yeah, I think it can look differently. You know, that's a beautiful illustration, but that's really beyond the scope of most families, frankly, and most workplaces. I mean, as you know, many people come to our company as a first job. They're oftentimes single parents. They could be sandwich adults where they're taking care of children and dealing with their elderly folks. So they've got to do their work, get the kids to school, potentially take care of elder parents. That's a lot to manage in a day. So when we think about what we might be able to do in the workplace, we've got to try to keep it simple. And we've come up with this concept of four different attributes that seem to work for us. Eat, connect, move, and chill. So by eat, we're revisiting our enterprise food policy and what we can do to help make healthy the easy choice. And that means getting people to steer to certain food selections, right? I think the second thing is connect. We want people to feel connected to their leaders, connected to their managers, connected to the supervisors on the topic of health. We want them to feel that we care about them. We want them to trust us because there's a fine border that you don't want to violate, right? When bringing people along on these topics and they don't want their privacy to be violated. Then the next element is move. So whether it's walking upstairs, taking a break when you're at the lab, stretching, getting up from your chair, moving during the day is critical. And then finally, chill. You know, the US Preventative Services Task Force just now recommended screening for anxiety in adults. So a lot of people are anxious and there's a lot that people have to manage and inflation makes things really tougher. What can people do during the day to just take a quiet decompression on their day and then get back at it? Healthy breathing is a good exercise. And then we offer some solutions that give people rapid access for concerns about depression or anxiety. So, the pandemic taught us a lot of lessons about the importance of staying physically and mentally healthy in our personal lives, in our daily routines. I want to pick up on what you were saying earlier. What's the value of having 
the focus on health and wellness in the workplace? And how does it tie into collective outcomes? Because we're talking about behavior changes here. We're talking about people who are anxious and maybe a little depressed because they've lost a loved one or they have a lot of pressure at home or the economy is vibrating around them and not in a good way. And their comfort food might be something that's really sweet or they want to sleep, they don't want to move. And I'll say that I felt prey to that myself. But how do you create and support in a positive and sustainable way those healthcare changes? How do you create these positive and sustainable healthcare changes? As a primary care physician, the first thing you do is listen, right? And we're in the environment of the great resignation. It's a great competition for talent. So we have to listen to what our employees are telling us is important to them. Work flexibility, adequate staffing, career pathways, health benefits, culture of health, support from their supervisors and managers, trust, etc. All those are critical attributes. So we begin with hearing all that and making sure that we build those needs into our own strategy. You're probably aware that we recently wrapped up a benefits survey where we asked folks about different elements of benefits to get their sense of their priorities. So we're taking in that information too. And so we start with listening. When I think about health and well-being, at least in 2022, 23, the anchor thing I'm most concerned about is cost. Half of U.S. adults say they have difficulty affording health care. The cost of health care is increasingly creating barriers to people taking access to health care. The cost of health care disproportionately affects those that are uninsured and minority individuals. And even those with health insurance potentially have barriers to access depending on their out-of-pocket obligations. And then there's health debt. About 100 million individuals have some degree of health care debt, and about 40% of folks express concern about their ability to pay it. So when I think about a culture of health and well-being in programs, the first thing I think about is affordability. And we're doing some things in terms of our cost increases as we go into 2023 with the key out-of-pocket obligation that people have. That's their bi-monthly premium to insulate those members who make lower salary tiers among our total population. And I feel really good about that. So if we take that pressure off, then we can engage them on other topics like health and well-being and culture and those other things. But if people are stressed financially, it's hard to get some mind share. Let me go back to what you were saying a little earlier about eat, connect, move, and chill. Those seem to be low-cost activities compared to the cost of managing disease, the cost of managing chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, hypertension, cancer. How do we get our colleagues and friends and families and loved ones to understand that doing the simple things or what appear to be the simple things on a regular basis will impact their health in a positive way over the long haul? First, people have to trust you. People have to feel you care about them in order to take people on a different journey than they're on. Or as we are using 
make healthy the easy choice. So we have to have consistent messaging. We have to message with integrity. We have to walk the walk. And you know, as colleagues, Quest is very good at that. It's a high integrity company. And the nature of the work we do, we realize that there's a person behind every test. So there's lots of accountability, lots of integrity, lots of transparency in our culture. That helps. I think that's a first part. The second part, you're right. You could build all the best programs, but you might not get people to engage. And so we're spending more time thinking about this whole area of psychological economics or behavioral economics. And I know you're a big reader. So it's books such as Nudge, Habit, Predictably Irrational, 50 Bits. And it basically says humans are wired, unfortunately, to be inattentive, to procrastinate, to not want to make choices. And we have to create, if you will, a choice architecture that moves them in a direction that's good for them, or as I said earlier, makes healthy the easy choice. So we're learning about communication style, communication content, communication visualization. We actually have a collaboration with MIT for several years on that very topic. And then certainly we want to think about our incentives and rewards and how we first identify folks that have need. For well over a decade now, we have an annual screening, our Blueprint for Wellness screening, where we have 65% of our beneficiaries and 80% of our employees participate. It's part of our culture. And we generate some great insights through that process. It has a health risk assessment component. It has laboratory components. It has measurements of height, weight, body mass index, blood pressure. And we get all that data at a population level, which helps us prioritize what solutions we want to offer to the population. It also is information that comes to individuals. So we're not looking at individual results. It's HIPAA protected. And what we have found is a certain percentage of folks, upon being notified that they have an abnormal, self-correct. It could be as high as 3 or 4%. So that becomes our anchor activity to identify the population risks, to invite people to do something. Then we have incentives and rewards, right, to create healthy as the easy choice. So for us, for people who complete Blueprint for Wellness, have a risk identified and engaged in a aligned program. So if you're pre-diabetic and you're offered OMADA and you participate, for example, the family incentive can be as high as $1,560, which is some of the highest I've seen nationally. So, Dr. Goldberg, you've got a lot of great ideas. How do you get those great ideas of health and wellness to touch the employees, to show them that we care, to build the trust? How do we move it from the philosophical, if you will, and the policy to the street level, how do we let healthcare or provide healthcare and health and wellness touch that patient? Yeah, well, Pat, when you and I were in the office full-time and interacting one-on-one, it really involved us having that one-on-one relationship. So when you think about the world we're in now, we're talking about a corporation with north of 400 sites, 55, 60,000 employees, 49 states, So it's a much different challenge, right? 
And, mm-hmm. and so I've mentioned culture before. I think that's critical. And then the question is, how do you diffuse that culture and philosophy programmatically? I think a lot about Cotter's model of change. So you need an aligned leadership and you need prioritization, a small core, and then it needs to cascade down to different levels of groups. You need to measure and continually reassess and refine. And so that's what we do. I'm offering a lot maybe conceptually, but we've got very specific objectives, metrics, and goals that we track and drive. We've got a data and analytics platform that lets us know how we're doing across multiple different domains, how we're doing on programs, how we're doing on conditions, how we're doing on cost centers. And so we literally have detailed strategies and detailed tactics across all of that. And then there's communications, right? Communications is for us, multiple tiered. So we have our intranet, we have annual regular healthcare observances. So go red in February for heart disease, women in heart disease, colorectal cancer screening in March, breast cancer screening in October. But then with our health plan partners, we actually send out messages, whether snail mail, email, or other, to folks who've been identified with certain risk to remind them to engage. So it's a multi-component activity. There's cultural things to do, there's strategic things to do, there's tactical things to do, and we're doing it, frankly, all at the same time. What I'm hearing you say, Steve, is that healthcare is really a habit, and it's a cultural habit for the organization that we share across all domains. How does it work? Give me some tactical examples of what you do. Okay, so we do annual screening and we'll get north of 35,000 people to participate. So we've got a good view of the issues in a population. Obesity, hypertension, lipids, kidney dysfunction, etc. And we also have a view of that by job function. And we also have a view of that by facility. Now, we're not looking at individual people names or IDs, but we're looking at things at a population level. So it gives us a sense of where we need to focus and what programs we need to offer. For example, that analysis had us identify back in 2018 that we had large opportunity with metabolic syndrome challenge in our call center teams. And so we implemented that eat, connect, move chill framework with different types of programs in two call center areas. And we were able to show that we bent the curve on metabolic syndrome within a 24-month interval. Now, there are a lot of different things we did. We underwrote healthy food. We went in and changed the positioning of certain items in food machines. We energized our Healthy Quest colleagues, which are volunteer champions. We invited folks to identify what things people wanted to help create a healthier environment in their particular area. For some, it was yoga mats, and we paid for it. For others, it was bottle-filling water fountain before they became more ubiquitous. We took care of that. So that's how we implement actions. I love the idea of having healthy colleague ambassadors. But when we're talking about investing in foods, investing in yoga mats, places of meditation, it sounds kind of pretty high end and pretty expensive. Why should I invest in this kind of work? And when is there a payoff? What's the benefit? What's the return on that investment? 
How do we measure that? Well, the risks we've talked about, hypertension, lipids, above ideal body weight, and other. It's pretty ubiquitous, certainly in our population, but nationally, right? That's a big problem. Roughly speaking, those issues cause about 25 to 30% of your healthcare spend in a given year. So there's a huge undercurrent of all that health risk in your spend. There's good literature on that. It's well studied. So what I'm looking to help them do is bend their longitudinal health care trajectory. And as self-insured employers, they're willing to make the investments because their employees stay a long time. They like the culture. They like the work. And so they're invested in the outcomes. Let's also talk about Blueprint for Wellness, right? So when we get our reports, you get a little score, right? You get a health quotient score. We actually have validated that that health quotient score has meaning for an individual or a population. So for a population, every point of improvement is associated with certain claim spend down the road. So as your health quotient goes up, your healthcare spend goes down. And as your healthcare quotient goes down, your healthcare spend goes up. So for us, at our size of a company, if we're able to make a one-point improvement in collective health quotient, which has measurements that include the health risk assessment, labs, the biophysical measurements, one-point improvement is about $1.25 to $1.5 million of avoidable healthcare spend. So to that point about saving money, it sounds like you and your team has been successful with an $80 million savings over the past five years or so. How hard are these programs to stand up? What kind of infrastructure do you need? So we don't develop our own pre-diabetes, diabetes, behavioral health, smoking cessation. We're working with a partner. So the first thing we do is do a critical appraisal of the patient journey and make sure it's something that makes sense to us. Then we have to go through a privacy review, an IT review. Then there's a master services agreement, scope of work, business associate agreement. And then we do contracting. And then we set both process and outcome metrics. Process metrics could be people's experience with the program. It could be the number of people that get enrolled. And then outcome often is, well, what do we expect as a result of the enrollment? So will body weight go down by something? Will glucose get controlled by something? So that's how we think about these programs. And fortunately, we have a medical informatics, biostatistics, and outcomes research team that designs our return on investment analyses. So we study everything and we critically appraise if we're getting lift and we co-publish with many of our partners. We've published with Omada, we've published with Verda, we're publishing with Corio Life Sciences on pharmacogenomics. So that is very important to us and our brand and our culture. And then also to contribute with our number one strategic charge, which is contribute to a healthier world. So it seems to me that you're organizing a lot of intellectual capital to focus initially on large populations of individuals, stratifying that population, and then bringing it down to the personal level where we can help cohorts of individuals, maybe change the way they think about food, think about smoking, think about their habits, think about their mental health. How do you keep going with this? How do you grow this program? How do you grow these behaviors? Going back to the Cotter change management model or any change management model, how do you get it to take traction? Pat, it's a garden, right? It's a garden. 
take care of the soil, take care of the water, take care of the seeds, watch the weeds, make sure you get sun, make sure you get water. And you need to do it continually. And then year over year over year, the garden looks better, richer, fuller. So we set up a certain architecture of how we do what we do within Quest. And then we have a certain architecture and structure for how people engage the healthcare ecosystem. And what we've been able to do is improve people's experience of care, lift population health and bend cost trends. But it's something that requires continuous refinement. Okay, so I love the garden metaphor. I want to pivot here to the issue of trust. Say that I'm an individual in the organization or working with this company, and I have a history of anxiety, depression, diabetes, hypertension, any number of other things. I'm reluctant to share that with anybody because that's private, intimate stuff. How do I trust that that information is going to be taken care of and held with the highest level of integrity and privacy that I need? to engage in these health system activities that are gonna make me better. How do I trust that it's gonna be protected? Well, there's federal law, right? and employers don't wanna violate federal law, and we set up processes to make sure that doesn't happen. Nobody from the company gets involved in such sensitive information. And when people have a need for question, they pull out, hopefully, their insurance card see the 1-800 number, and that directs all inquiries throughout the states for any employee to a telephonic service where we have 30 to 35 individuals, including nine clinicians, that are available to handle any question. From as simple as, I need a new ID card to, sadly, I've been diagnosed with cancer. Where do I go? What do I do? And they're prepared to deal with it all, and they are highly skilled in empathy, and they're highly skilled in customer service. And we all understand the importance of protected health information. So as we wrap up here, we keep on thinking about this. What's the value of this? I mean, everybody wants to be thin, fit, active, happy, engaged with their family, stress-free, find meaning in their work. How do we make this available for the general population? And why is this valuable for an employer to do? Because workplace health and well-being seems to be relatively new. How do we begin to move the needle on these behavioral changes? Because we're convinced that if we can begin to modify behaviors, that it's going to lead to better health outcomes. But it's a long-term commitment. Well, we have to compel each person to go on the journey and get them long enough in it until they start feeling better. And you feel better and sleep better if you exercise. And you have less free-floating anxiety if you exercise, eat well, and sleep better. And you feel better if you're diabetic and your sugar stays in a more narrow range than if it's all over the place. And then hearing from colleagues that have been on a similar journey and can share their battles and their ups and downs to a point of being in a better place and connecting with that. So it's all of those pieces together. I'm very optimistic as we've implemented different solutions. We've been really touched by the different testimonials, whether it's someone whose child had trouble getting access for behavioral health consult to someone whose genetic insight helped shape their physician's planning of medication, to someone who didn't know they had kidney dysfunction and frankly was able to get into dialysis in a controlled way 
rather than have it be a crisis episode because of what we found out with Blueprint for Wellness. Those are all heartwarming and compelling stories. They're helpful for the individuals and then we share them throughout the company with people's support. And then to your recurrent comments about privacy, we really have to have a zero failure rate on those issues so that we can help maintain trust and invite people on this journey of making healthy, easier choice. When we look at our Blueprint for Wellness, what are the components of the Blueprint for Wellness and how often are those repeated? It's a health risk assessment, it's laboratory tests, and it's biophysical measurements, things like height, weight, waist circumference, body mass index, blood pressure, et cetera. Those tests we offer on an annual basis, and then we have a committee that looks at the different components. Are we asking the right questions? Are we doing the right lab tests? Are we getting the right measurements? It's a very rich benefit, an illuminating benefit. So, Steve, you talked about employee, employer health being a garden. And I think of a garden as a super complex, integrated ecosystem. This is no different. What are the key messages that you want to leave us with in terms of what kind of mindset do you need to have to deploy these tools and to continue to build health and well-being into the culture of your organization? Oh, great. Pat, it's been great to chat with you today. Lots of fun, as always. In my experience here, I think a couple things. I think you need senior leadership commitment and their personal willingness to share their own healthcare journeys. I think that's critical. You need rituals of keeping people engaged on the topic. And as I mentioned earlier, we have our Blueprint for Wellness. We have our February Wear Red for Women in Heart Disease, March for Colorectal Cancer, October for Breast Cancer Screening. We have the ability to reach out to individuals to give them little triggers based on some information that might come up about their health and well-being or screening needs. So it's all of that doing that surveillance and then having a benefit structure that creates comfort for people to seek out primary care relationships, preventative health screening, and getting them to right care at the right time when they have a healthcare need. And then having our navigators, about 35 FTEs, to help them on the journey. So it's all these different pieces at the same time. And when you do it successfully, you get people that feel really good about their care. You feel successful moving the health of the population, preventative screening and other, and then bending the cost care trend. And we have to have both hands on the wheels at all time to drive that. And we're on a journey. My hope is that the scope of our offerings and the measurement of our success incrementally improves year over year over year. Well, I can tell you for sure, Steve, that your commitment and your team's commitment to the health and well-being of our organization is making a difference. And I hope that that can spread into other organizations. So, Steve, as we close today, what do you want us to remember? I would say that this time right now, internationally, nationally, is stressful. And so I would first encourage each of us to try to be patient with our colleagues and our neighbors and others. That would be first and foremost. The second would be to have empathy, to recognize many people are having very serious economic challenges in light of inflation. And we don't know how tough it can be for some folks. And then what I would say in our workplace, what we try to do is do our best ability to make healthcare accessible 
and the experience successful and valuable. And we have good success, but we have a lot more that we can do. Well, Steve, this has just been a joy to talk to you and to feel that your commitment is real and to experience it. So thank you very, very much. Thank you, my friend. Very generous. Thank you. You too. Steve or Dr. Goldberg, I'd like to thank you for joining us on the show today and sharing your insights into the value and the importance of employer-based health programs. And to you, the audience, if you've enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe so you don't miss another episode of Diagnostic Dialogues, Innovation and Insight, presented by Quest Diagnostics. Again, I'm your host, Dr. Pat Aleja, and thank you for your time, and thank you for listening.